From Founders Fun in San Francisco, I'm Mike Solana, and you're listening to Anatomy of Next. New World. This season, we're exploring every aspect of going to Mars, of turning it into a habitable, living planet, and of starting a new branch of human civilization. Today, strange rockets. The energy release is a billion times more energy. A Mars trip would go from about 500 days to 30 days. Antimatter has the highest energy density of any material in the universe. In the first kind of chapter of this season, episodes one through four, we're looking at how we're getting to Mars and how we'll survive off Earth. In the second part of the series, we'll explore all the aspects of building our first colony on Mars and the process of terraforming or turning Mars into an Earth-like planet with running water, a breathable atmosphere, protection from radiation, and populating or repopulating our new world with life. And in the season's final third, we're going to look at the shape of human civilization on our new world through the lens of all the new technologies we'll be working with. You know, what is education on Mars? What's money? What's fun? Now, there's a natural, obvious arc to the story since we already have almost all of the technology to do this. Here in the series, we're really just piecing everything together. But there are a handful of what would be paradigm-shifting technologies to consider. Stuff that, if we got it working, would really dramatically alter the story. And throughout the season, just a few times, I want to take a quick break away from our primary narrative to take a look at what I'm terming here, the wild cards. So far this season, we've talked about the likely shape of our first mission to Mars. And from this likely shape, we can extrapolate a kind of entire future space infrastructure. Imagine thousands of rockets carrying hundreds of thousands of people to our first colony off Earth. But the whole journey is currently imagined, as currently designed and planned by the folks building towards this, relies on something called a reaction engine, or an engine that produces thrust by firing reaction mass, usually some kind of fuel, backward. Now, a subset within the category of reaction engines, including all of our rockets currently in production and slated for production, employ something called chemical propulsion. In the case of SpaceX's Falcon 9, for example, we're burning liquid oxygen and rocket-grade kerosene propellants. But there are different approaches. Within the category of reaction drives, we can imagine nuclear, ion thrust, and even antimatter rockets, all of which we're going to talk about today. But I want to start in the realm of total speculation. And the reaction list drive. Theoretically, currently impossible, but what if? Commander Riker's team is aboard, sir. Help, warp one, engage. The fastest spacecraft ever launched from Earth carried NASA's New Horizons probe, which famously flew by Pluto in 2015. The Atlas V rocket carrying the probe blasted off from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and left Earth at around 58,000 kilometers per hour. And Voyager 1 managed to pick up a little more speed from a wild Jupiter-Saturn slingshot and leave our solar system at around 61,000 kilometers per hour. Even were we manning flights at this speed, a speed more than twice the speed of our fastest manned mission to date, it would take us 63 days to get to our sun, around five years to get to Neptune, and to our closest neighboring star, around 47,000 years. Outer space is massive. That's a tough pill to swallow for the casual viewer of Star Trek, Star Wars, or Battlestar Galactica. Or before them, the casual readers of our modern science fiction, in Asimov, Heinlein, and Clark. We're looking for strange new worlds, and we're looking for them every other chapter, so our writers did what they do best. They made a lot of stuff up. We needed faster than light travel, so they gave us warp drives. Now, not only do our heroes in science fiction travel many times faster than our fastest astronauts ever, they're shattering the speed of light, and with it, our entire understanding of physics. 
Now, I'm not here to tell you things are impossible, but a weekend jaunt to Alpha Centauri seems, in the short term, without some massive breakthrough in our conception of the physical world, unlikely. And yet, there are other ways of approaching, at the very least, our travel through the solar system. They're not even new. Let's, let's talk about this. This is, this is interesting. Well, there's, there's a just tremendously exciting prospect. That's Carl Sagan on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was excited about a theoretical proposal for a kind of spacecraft that could travel at 240,000 kilometers per hour. It's four times faster than Voyager 1. It was 1976. They called it the Solar Sail. Which travels on the radiation and particles that come out of the sun, the wind from the sun. And it works exactly as a, an ordinary sailboat does. So it can go out from the sun, it can tack inwards to the sun, and because it has a constant acceleration, it can get you around the inner part of the solar system a lot faster and a lot more conveniently than the usual sorts of uh, rocket propulsion. I think the solar sail is a beautiful place to start. It's imaginative, reasonable, and highly effective. But it's also expensive and still just the stuff of theory. There is a whole community of folks working on stuff in the vein of this, though. And in the case of one design, at least, it's not even theoretical. The next most reasonable step in space propulsion is going from chemical reactions to nuclear reactions. The energy released from fissioning an atom is a billion times more energy than breaking the bonds between two atoms. It's Mark Massey, the CTO of Transatomic Power. You might remember Mark from our episode on Fermi's Paradox, talking about the likely tragic fate of super-brainy aliens across the universe. But Mark spends most of his time thinking about nuclear power. And like a lot of the folks in our community, his interests have a pretty interesting application in space. In this case, the nuclear rocket, which we've actually already built. NASA's work on nuclear rockets wasn't just paper design studies. They actually built and tested many nuclear rockets in the middle of the Nevada desert. At the Nuclear Rocket Development Station in Nevada, NASA, in cooperation with the Atomic Energy Commission, test-fired a powerful nuclear rocket reactor. The tests are part of an effort to develop nuclear-powered rockets for future deep space exploration. It's a nuclear reactor turned upside down with fire shooting out the, the other <laughs> end of it. And they didn't do this just once. They tested six different versions of what was called the Kiwi reactor, which was a one-tenth scale version of what they were planning to use to get astronauts beyond the moon. Like, there are no technical barriers that have to be broken now. So this almost doesn't even qualify as one of the technological wild cards. We have all of the technology to do this, to build nuclear rockets today. But you're probably wondering, first of all, what's the catch? If we have the technology, why haven't we done this already? And what's the point? What's so great about a nuclear rocket anyway? Before we worry about the drawbacks, it's probably worth focusing on that. Why do we want this? The primary benefit of using a nuclear rocket to get to Mars instead of a chemical rocket, is to protect the astronauts from radiation, which sounds kind of ridiculous. <laughs> the current plans to send people to Mars and back using chemical rockets, the ones that I've seen proposed have timelines that range from six months to nine months just for the one-way trip from Earth to Mars. That means 
a year to two years just in transit. Add in another six months or a year on the surface of Mars of effectively unshielded exposure to radiation. Using a nuclear thermal rocket, you could reduce the transit time from six to nine months to one to two months. The main number I've seen bandied about the most is six weeks. Six weeks to Mars? Six weeks from low Earth orbit to Mars. That's crazy. I had no idea that it was it, that. It sounds crazy, but it's not actually crazy. <laughs> so that sounds great. A trip in six weeks, that is amazing. But about those drawbacks. The main use case for a nuclear rocket is for traveling beyond Earth. Why can't you not, use it to get off of Earth? You can, it's just not a good idea. So in a nuclear power plant, you have fuel rods that when you get enough of them together, they start getting hot and you pass water through them. And the water heats up and you use that to turn a turbine and that's how you get electricity. A nuclear rocket takes the same concept, but instead of passing a liquid, through a loop that continues to circulate, you have hydrogen that is coming in at the top of the reactor. And as it passes through the reactor core, it heats up to tremendously high temperatures and then is exhausted out the nozzle of the rocket. When you first start this out, you just have uranium and enriched uranium itself is not radioactive. But as soon as you start producing power from that uranium, you start producing all of these other elements. Basically, every element on the periodic table gets produced. And many of those are highly radioactive. So if you were to launch a nuclear thermal rocket from the surface of the Earth, you would be sending all of this radiation directly onto the surface You'd really of the Earth. You'd like a plume of radioactive dust onto civilization right right right, <laughs> okay. right got it don't want to do that yeah that is a that is a terrible idea but it sounds like another cut is so you, you blast off to the moon with chemical ro rockets traditional chemical rockets you don't even uh, have to get to the moon one of the many great things about living on planet earth is the earth's ionosphere our atmosphere on earth is comprised of a bunch of layers and the ionosphere the outermost layer is made up of as you've probably guessed ions the ions act as a kind of force field that shields our planet from, among many other things, solar radiation. From here, you can start to imagine a new nuclear space infrastructure that only employs chemical rockets, now far cheaper thanks to the kind of work we've seen out of SpaceX, to give us a leg up. Once the surface of Earth is at a safe distance from our nuclear exhaust, a nuclear thermal rocket can operate the same way the United States aircraft carriers and submarines. Like, they have nuclear reactors that only have to be refueled once every 30 years or so. You could do the same thing with a nuclear thermal rocket. You build one of them, you use a chemical rocket to launch it into low Earth orbit, and then you turn on the nuclear thermal rocket, and it can cycle between Earth and Mars for the next 30 years without ever having to be refueled. You just sort of created a, a comet that yeah. you effectively hitch a ride to. Right. I imagine you've seen Apollo 13. Yeah. Hey, we've got a problem here. What did you do? Nothing, I stirred the tanks. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Okay, so 
So much of the tension in that movie is based on the very, very small amount of fuel that they had to use to maneuver to get back to Earth. Much of the action is just the astronauts in the capsule floating without any sort of maneuverability. And they turn on the engines for like five seconds, and that's all they have to make sure that they're on the correct trajectory. A nuclear thermal rocket, you could do that the entire way, like to Mars and back for 30 years, would which make, is ridiculous. Wouldn't make much of a movie, though. <laughs> I want my movies to be suspenseful. I want my trip to Mars to be really boring. <laughs> and also preferably really short. <laughs> And that's nuclear. It's a compelling idea. It's efficient. It's technologically proven. And I think moving forward, as our space infrastructure matures, the nuclear rocket is going to become a notable part of our reality. But this is a wildcard episode, and I want to get a little crazier. Let's talk about something that really no one in the mainstream is talking about. Antimatter has the highest energy density of any material in the universe. We're trying to harness that for use in propulsion. Ryan Weed is the CEO and co-founder of Positron Dynamics. They work on something called the anti-electron, or antimatter. It's kind of a big, scary word that gets thrown around a lot, especially in, like, science fiction. Let's go ahead and start with a brief definition of what exactly it is we're really working with here. Well, I like to describe it, and a lot of people describe it as mirror matter. It has the exact same mass as matter counterpart. So you have an electron and you have an anti-electron, which we call a positron. You have protons and you have antiprotons. And so every particle has an antiparticle counterpart. And the really interesting part is that when you combine antimatter with its matter counterpart, you get something called annihilation. Both particles disappear and form energy. And that's where the benefit in terms of energy density comes from, because it's really very efficient way of converting mass into energy uh, when you compare it with chemical combustion or even nuclear fission or fusion. All right, so now what does all of this mean in practice? Looking into how one goes about getting to Mars, everything is kind of built around this six-month trajectory. And people in general, you know, people in space in general, are just really limited by how fast we can move. Space is enormous. So there's like, on the one hand, the physical constraints, and then on the other, our human lifespan make it so we can't really see much of the universe, it seems. But maybe there is just this chance that, you know, any time between now and the next 100 years or something, we have some kind of major breakthrough that would change that situation in some way. And it seems like antimatter technology, for lack of a better phrase, would do that. Am I wrong? What, what is going on with that? Tell me about antimatter rockets. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I mean, you have to go back to, again, to the 1920s when, you know, Robert Goddard was developing chemical liquid propulsion. And our, our technology for rockets fundamentally hasn't changed much since then. You know, the energy you get from combustion gives you an exhaust velocity in your rocket of only a few thousand meters per second. And so if you want to go much faster than that, you're going to have to figure out a way to exhaust your uh, particles out of the back end of your rocket much faster. And so that's really where antimatter comes in. Because when you annihilate antimatter, you get very energetic particles. They're moving you know, several orders of magnitude faster than what you get from chemical propulsion. In rocket physics, you call that specific impulse, the velocity at which the particles are leaving your rocket nozzle. With antimatter propulsion, you get particles that are, that are a thousand times faster than anything out there right now. 
taking an antimatter rocket trip to, to Mars might take a month or two rather than six months with chemical propulsion. The thing with, with specific impulse is that sort of the optimum specific impulse is related to the distance that you have to go. So antimatter concepts, while they are very valuable inside our own solar system, they get more valuable the farther away you go. So the outer solar system like Pluto, rather than taking a decade, it might take a year. And so and if you look at further out, going to places that are light years away, then that's really where a high specific impulse concept like antimatter propulsion gets really valuable. Can you walk me through the math here? Because I, I did, see, I saw part of your video and you, you talked about traveling between stars and it seemed just, the number seemed shockingly low. The amount of time seemed to get there seemed shockingly low. Yeah, yeah. To, to some extent, the further you, or the closer you get, if you scale your antimatter propulsion system high enough in thrust, you can start reaching significant fractions of the speed of light. And then you, you, know, you open up that can of worms in terms of special relativity and time dilation. But even before then, if you can accelerate to even 0.1 of the speed of light, 10% of the speed of light, you can you can think about getting to Alpha Centauri in, in a human lifetime or a few decades. And so, you know, if you compare that to if you were taking a chemical rocket trip to Alpha Centauri, it might take, you know, 20 or 30,000 years, which is pretty infeasible. This is not something that would just get us to Mars. Antimatter is something that, if we get it working, could really unlock the stars for humankind. But this is all still pretty well steeped in theory. There are a lot of technology hurdles. The primary issue with antimatter propulsion now is, is just production of antimatter. It's very difficult to create. We've created less than a nanogram worldwide since the 1920s. And that's primarily due to the fact that once you create antimatter, it's very difficult to handle it. One of the reasons is that when, it, when it's created, it's created a very high energy and so you can't really use realistic electric and magnetic fields to guide and, and trap the antimatter. What my company is, is focused on initially was the what's called moderation or the cooling down of antimatter to reasonable temperatures. And so if you can solve that problem and efficiently cool down positrons or antimatter in general, that's the first step in, in making antimatter propulsion realistic in the short term. A lot like in nuclear fusion, we have the technology to release just unfathomable amounts of energy. We just haven't yet cracked the technology that's going to let us harness that energy. My name is Natalia Bailey, and I'm founder and CEO of Axion Systems. We're building a next generation ion engine. Ion thrust, which while it may have a lower maximum specific impulse, so dreams of Alpha Centauri, for example, not entirely realistic, are a little closer to reality in terms of getting us to Mars. So far in this episode, we've talked about the super speculative reactionless drives. We have then, under the bucket of interesting new reaction drives, talked about the theoretically possible antimatter rocket. But now we're getting a little closer to reality, further from fiction, closer to reality with ion thrust engine, or how, how do I? Ion engine. The ion engine. So most people are familiar with chemical rockets, um, where you combust two gases and expel the hot products of that out the back of a nozzle. And the force from pushing those out the back pushes the rocket or spacecraft in the opposite direction. Ion engines still fall under that reaction class where something leaves the back of the spacecraft with some momentum and that equal and opposite momentum is imparted to the spacecraft and it moves in the other direction. 
but with an ion engine or or more broadly electric propulsion, uh, you're producing that force and that momentum using charged particles. So you could think of our engine like a tiny astronaut riding on the back of a satellite throwing tennis balls off the back. And each time he throws a tennis ball off the back, the spacecraft or satellite moves a little bit in the other direction. And for us, those tennis balls are ions or charged particles. So you're using some kind of electrical source to charge up the particle. What What is the raw chemical that you're charging? Yeah, well, so this is where Axion's different than what's conventionally been done. A more traditional ion engine would use a neutral gas and you would inject that neutral gas, either xenon or argon, into an ionization chamber. So you have these uncharged neutral particles of xenon or argon, and you have to inject a beam of high-energy electrons into that chamber. And each one of those electrons needs to collide with one of these neutral particles, knock another electron off of it, and create an ion that's charged. So then, you know, eventually you end up with some fraction of ions in your chamber. You apply an electric field and that accelerates them all all out of the chamber to produce thrust. Axion uses a liquid propellant, so we don't have to inject gases into a chamber and hope for collisions and ionization. Um, We essentially bring positive and negative ions up with us in our propellant and just extract them from the liquid that we use. So there's no ionization step. The ion engine is more efficient, but not necessarily less expensive than a traditional chemical rocket. Is this what's keeping us from developing them on a larger scale? Like, like why are we still using chemical rockets if we have this, this other technology? So the challenge with electric propulsion is the size of the power supply that you need to, to bring on board to accelerate these particles. So if you tried to launch from the surface of the earth with a system like this, this power supply would be too immense. If we were able to get comfortable with Uh, nuclear power supplies and start launching those using electric propulsion systems, Uh, maybe we could start launching things off the surface of the earth. But today with the power supplies that we use, it really only makes sense for in-space maneuvers. And what would be the advantage to this? Why not just use a traditional chemical rocket? Because electric systems are much more fuel efficient. So you could carry much less fuel to accomplish the same maneuver. Today, All of the big satellites in orbit already use ion engines for maneuvering in space. They just use chemical to get off the ground. But once they're in orbit, ion engines are everywhere up there. What a lot of people don't realize, though, is that anything interplanetary we've done hasn't used any propulsion to maneuver or to speed up its trajectory. We've launched it, set Voyager, New Horizons, we've set them on their course, and they use planetary bodies' gravity, uh, gravity assists to, to make their way to their destination. So there's this whole extension from our geo-satellite market segment to interplanetary that we need to make the leap with electric propulsion systems to speed all of that up. How much would it speed it up? A Mars trip would go from about 500 days to 30 days with some engines that are being developed right now. Wow, that's incredible. It seems that we should be hearing a lot more about ion engines, and I'm curious how or why we're not. That's an, an enormous difference. Yeah, I agree. So NASA right now is developing what they've three-letter acronymed a solar electric propulsion system, an SEP. The idea there is that this engine would produce about 30 kilowatts of power and would be used for interplanetary missions to cut down that time. But if you don't want to go with NASA, we're also hoping to one day perform interplanetary missions with our system as well. 
The title of this episode is Strange Rockets. This is not actually that strange. It seems, I mean, I can't actually imagine a world in which we don't start using these. Yeah, that's right. We've got our mission to Mars. Start small and scrappy. Just get to the red planet and progress from there. The critical piece of this puzzle so far has been a space infrastructure with an almost industrial era backbone, chemical propulsion. This is great for now. The key thing is just to get our civilization up off the ground again. But we have extraordinary technology, both in theory and already in practice. Let's not stop working on the wild cards. Next week, mortality in space, and we vanquish a nightmare. I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next. New World. 